Section twelve of Vagabond Adventures. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vagabond Adventures by Ralph Keeler. Book two. Three years as a Negro Minstrel. Chapter two. I become a beneficiary. It may as well be owned that I had no natural aptness for the banjo, and was always an indifferent player. But for dancing I had, I am confident, such a remarkable gift as few have ever had. Up to this day I do not think I ever have seen a step done by man or woman that I could not do as soon as I saw it. Not saying, of course, how gracefully. I am not, however, so vain or proud of this gift as I used to be, and should hardly have written the foregoing sentence at all had it not seemed necessary to a proper understanding of subsequent passages in this narrative. I was still so small of stature, and yet capable of producing so much noise with the coppers on my heels, that, by the wholesale clerks and young bloods about town, I was considered in the light of a prodigy, and made to shuffle my feet at almost all hours and in almost all localities. It was by this means, at some place of convivial resort, that I attracted the notice and admiration of a conductor on the Michigan Southern and Northern Indiana Railroad. He determined to have so much talent with him all the time, and prevailed upon me to be his train-boy. Here, as on the lake, I had the exclusive privilege of selling books and papers to the passengers. The great railways were not then farmed by a single person or firm as now. I was my own agent, and the regulator of my own prices and profits. Both of these latter I found it convenient to make large, and was again the possessor of more money than I cared to spend. It was my business to carry water through the cars at stated intervals. On a day train I could afford to perform my duty with promptness, when I had sufficiently worried the passengers with my merchandise. But on a night train, which came to my lot just as often as a day train, I took a more lucrative and, I fear, less reputable means of quenching the thirst of travelers. There were no sleeping cars in those times, and, I believe, no water tanks in the passenger cars. My memory may fail me in this matter of the water-tanks, but I am certain that I never filled them, if there were any on our road. I don't know whether more people traveled then than now, but I remember the trains were exceeding long ones in those hot summer nights, and the people became terribly thirsty, and this is the way I comforted them. Taking a barrel of water, a pail full of brown sugar, and a proper amount of well-known acid, I concocted lemonade, which I sold through the train for five cents a glass. When thirsty lips asked piteously for water, I would tell the sufferer with perfect truth that there was not a drop of pure water left on the train. I blush to write that I sometimes sold fifteen dollars worth of this vile compound in a night. I was taught how to prepare it by a man who traveled with a circus and who assured me that all his ice-cold lemonade was concocted in the same way, and that, far from having killed anybody, it gave perfect satisfaction to the gentlemen and ladies from the country who were his principal customers. The only excuse I have to offer for myself now is that I was not conscious then how great a villain I really was. 
Toward the middle of the summer the cholera became so prevalent in the western cities that I thought it prudent to retire from the active life of a train-boy and live quietly on my earnings. I settled myself, therefore, at a fashionable boarding-house in Toledo. Here the landlady, fearful of the dust and anxious for the integrity of her carpet, made a remarkable compromise with me to the glory of aesthetics. Whenever there was a pressing request from the boarders for me to exercise my feet, she would bustle in with a large roll of oilcloth, and spread it uncomplainingly on the parlor floor near the piano to the music of which I danced. This was, I think, the first introduction of clogs as a drawing-room entertainment. I soon came to be invited out as a sort of cub-lion, and thus it happened that the rumor and dust of my accomplishments spread gradually throughout the city. One evening I strolled into what was then the St. Nicholas, and stepping to the bar, which came just up to my juvenile shoulders, I demanded authoritatively of the bartender if he had any good pale brandy. He said that he had. I told him in the same imperative tone to give me a ten-cent drink, and none of this instant-death kind either. This made somewhat of a sensation among the frequenters of that fashionable resort. They evidently mistook this brandy-bibbing as a swaggering habit of mine, whereas I was honestly prescribing for myself what had been recommended to me as the best preventive of cholera. Having swallowed and paid for the brandy, I was preparing to withdraw when I heard this dialogue going on behind me. Who, for pity's sake, is that? That? Why? that's just the boy you want but can't he dance though turning i saw a couple of well-dressed men seated together at the end of the room i had barely time to observe that one was a stranger to me when the other called me to him and introduced me to johnny booker now i had heard the songs then popular meet johnny booker in the bowling green and johnny booker help this nigger and when I was aware that I was standing before the person to whose glory these lyrics had been written, I was very much abashed. I looked upon a great negro minstrel as unquestionably the greatest man on earth, and it was some time before I could answer his questions intelligibly. In the course of a few minutes, however, I was conducted into a private room where I was made to dance Juba to the time which the comedian himself gave me by means of his two hands and one foot, and which is technically called patting. My performance, it seems, was satisfactory, for I was engaged on the spot. Mr. Booker was then waiting for the rest of his company to join him, and when they arrived I was instituted jig-dancer to the troupe, with a weekly salary of five dollars and all my traveling expenses. The other performers came, I know not from what dismembered bands, to the relief or grief of I know not what distant hotels or boarding-houses, but, I will venture to say, no landlord, to whom the more reckless of them may have been in arrears, could have regarded their movements with a more lively interest than I did after their arrival at Toledo. As they came straggling in, one after the other, with their bass viols and guitars and banjos in mysterious bags of green baize or glazed oilcloth, I looked upon them as I might have looked upon people who had come from another world. If some of them appeared a little seedy, in the long interval between this and their previous engagement, 
and if others wore their coats strangely buttoned over their shirt-bosoms, I put it down, of course, to the peculiarity and privilege of genius. When I walked through the streets to and from rehearsal with these strange beings, it was a triumphal procession to me. I seemed crowned for the time with the glory with which my young imagination had invested everything belonging to them. It is impossible to convey an idea of the gratified ambition with which I prepared for my first appearance on the stage. The great Napoleon in the coronation robes, which can be seen any day in the Tuileries, was not prouder or happier than I when I made my initial bow before the footlights in my small canton flannel knee-pants, cheap lace, gold tinsel, corked face, and woolly wig. I do not remember any embarrassment, for I was only doing it in public what I had already done for the majority of the audience in private. If I had acquitted myself much worse than I really did, my debut would still, I am convinced, have been considered a success. So great, indeed, was the local pride of the good Toledans in their infant phenomenon, that after the company had exhibited a week, my name, or rather the nom de guerre which I had assumed, was put up for a benefit. On that day I had the satisfaction of seeing hung across the street on a large canvas a watercolor representation of myself, with one arm and one leg elevated in the act of performing juba over the heads and carts and carriages of the passers-by. At night the house was crowded, and I was called out three times. But what afterwards struck me as unaccountably odd was that I received not one cent from the proceeds of this benefit. When my salary was paid me at the end of the next week, I was assured that this benefit business was a mere trick of the trade, and I was forced to content myself with the fact that I had learned something in my new profession. End of chapter 2 I Become a Beneficiary